Part Two, Chapter Ten of Burning Daylight by Jack London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The time passed, and daylight played on at the game, but the game had entered upon a new phase. The lust for power in the mere gambling and winning was metamorphosing into the lust for power in order to revenge. There were many men in San Francisco against whom he had registered black marks, and now and again, with one of his lightning strokes, he erased such a mark. He asked no quarter. He gave no quarter. Men feared and hated him, and no one loved him, except Larry Hagan, his lawyer, who would have laid down his life for him. But he was the only man with whom Daylight was really intimate though he was on terms of friendliest camaraderie with the rough and unprincipled following of the bosses who ruled the Riverside Club. On the other hand, San Francisco's attitude toward daylight had undergone a change. While he, with his slashing buccaneer methods, was a distinct menace to the more orthodox financial gamblers, he was nevertheless so grave a menace that they were glad enough to leave him alone. He had already taught them the excellence of letting a sleeping dog lie. Many of the men, who knew that they were in danger of his big bear paw when it reached out for the honey vats, even made efforts to placate him, to get on the friendly side of him. The Alta Pacific approached him confidentially with an offer of reinstatement, which he promptly declined. He was after a number of men in that club and whenever opportunity offered, he reached out for them and mangled them. Even the newspapers, with one or two blackmailing exceptions, ceased abusing him and became respectful. In short, he was looked upon as a bald-faced grizzly from the Arctic wilds, to whom it was considered expedient to give the trail. At the time he had raided the steamship companies, they had yapped at him and worried him the whole pack of them, only to have him whirl around and whip them in the fiercest pitched battle San Francisco had ever known. Not easily forgotten was the Pacific Slope Seaman Strike and the giving over of the municipal government to the labor bosses and grafters. The destruction of Charles Klinkner and the California and Altamont Trust Company had been a warning, but it was an isolated case they had been confident in strength in numbers, until he taught them better. Daylight still engaged in daring speculations, as, for instance, at the impending outbreak of the Japanese-Russian War, when in the face of the experience and power of his shipping gamblers, he reached out and clutched practically a monopoly of available steamer charters. There was scarcely a battered tramp on the seven seas that was not his on-time charter. As usual, his position was, you've got to come and see me, which they did, and to use another of his phrases, they paid through the nose for the privilege. All his venturing and fighting had now but one motive. Some day, as he confided to Hagen, when he made a sufficient stake, he was going back to New York and knocked the spots out of Messrs. Dowsett, Letton, and Guggenhammer. He'd show them what an all-around general buzzsaw he was, 
and what a mistake they made ever to monkey with him. But he never lost his head, and he knew that he was not yet strong enough to go into death grapples with those three early enemies. In the meantime, the black marks against them remained for a future easement day. Deedee Mason was still in the office. He had made no more overtures, discussed no more books, and no more grammar. He had no active interest in her, and she was to him a pleasant memory of what had never happened, a joy which, by his essential nature, he was barred from ever knowing. Yet while his interest had gone to sleep and his energy was consumed in the endless battles he waged, he knew every trick of the light on her hair, every quick denote mannerism of movement, every line of her figure as expounded by her tailor-made gowns. Several times, six months or so apart, he had increased her salary. Until now she was receiving ninety dollars a month. Beyond this he dared not go, though he had got around it by making the work easier. This he had accomplished after her return from a vacation by retaining her substitute as an assistant. Also, he had changed his office suite so that now the two girls had a room by themselves. His eye had become quite critical wherever Deedee Mason was concerned. He had long since noted her pride of carriage. It was unobtrusive, yet it was there. He decided, from the way she carried it, that she deemed her body a thing to be proud of, to be cared for as a beautiful and valued possession. In this, and in the way she carried her clothes, he compared her with her assistant, with the stenographers he encountered in other offices, with women he saw on the sidewalks. She's sure well put up, he communed with himself, and she sure knows how to dress and carry it off without being stuck on herself and without laying it on thick. The more he saw of her, and the more he thought he knew of her, the more unapproachable did she seem to him. But since he had no intention of approaching her, this was anything but an unsatisfactory fact. He was glad he had her in his office, and hoped she'd stay, and that was about all. Daylight did not improve with the passing years. The life was not good for him. He was growing stout and soft, and there was unwanted flabbiness in his muscles. The more he drank cocktails, the more he was compelled to drink in order to get the desired result. The inhibitions that eased him down from the concert pitch of his operations. And with this went wine, too, at meals, and the long drinks after dinner of scotch and soda at the riverside. Then, too, his body suffered from lack of exercise, and from lack of decent human associations. His moral fibers were weakening. Never a man to hide anything. Some of his escapades became public, such as speeding and joy rides in his big red motor car down to San Jose with companions distinctly sporty, incidents that were narrated as good fun and comically in the newspapers. Nor was there anything to save him. Religion had passed him by. A long time dead was his epitome of that phase of speculation. He was not interested in humanity. According to his rough-hewn sociology, it was all a gamble. God was a whimsical, abstract, 
mad thing called luck. As to how one happened to be born, whether a sucker or a robber, was a gamble to begin with. Luck dealt out the cards, and the little babies picked up the hand allotted them. Protest was vain. Those were their cards, and they had to play them, willy-nilly, hunchbacked or straight-backed, crippled or clean-limbed, addle-pated or clear-headed. There was no fairness in it. The cards most picked up put them into the sucker class. The cards of a few enabled them to become robbers. The playing of the cards was life. The crowd of players, society. The table was the earth, and the earth, in lumps and chunks, from loaves of bread to big red motor cars, was the stake. And in the end, lucky and unlucky, they were all a long time dead. It was hard on the stupid lowly, for they were coopered to lose from the start. But the more he saw of the others, the apparent winners, the less it seemed to him that they had anything to brag about. They, too, were a long time dead, and their living did not amount to much. It was a wild animal fight. The strong trampled the weak, and the strong, he had already discovered, men like Dowsett and Letton and Guggenhammer, were not necessarily the best. He remembered his minor comrades in the Arctic. They were the stupid lowly. They did the hard work and were robbed of the fruits of their toil, just as was the old woman making wine in the Sonoma Hills. And yet they had finer qualities of truth and loyalty and square dealing than did the men who robbed them. The winners seemed to be the crooked ones, the unfaithful ones, the wicked ones. And even they had no say in the matter. They played the cards that were given them, and luck, the monstrous mad god thing, the owner of the whole shebang, looked on and grinned. It was he who stacked the universal card deck of existence. There was no justice in the deal. The little men that came, the little pulpy babies, were not even asked if they wanted to try a flutter at the game. They had no choice. Luck jerked them into life and slammed them up against the jostling table and told them, Now play, damn you, play. And they did their best, poor little devils. The play of some led to steam yachts and mansions, of others to the asylum or the pauper's ward. Some played one same card over and over and made wine all their days in the chaparral, hoping at the end to pull down a set of false teeth and a coffin. Others quit the game early, having drawn cards that called for violent death, or famine in the barrens, or loathsome and lingering diseases. The hands of some called for kingship, an irresponsible enumerated power. Other hands called for ambition, for wealth and untold sums, for disgrace and shame, or for women and wine. As for himself, he had drawn a lucky hand, though he could not see all the cards. Somebody or something might get him yet. That mad god, Luck, might be tricking him along to some such end. An unfortunate set of circumstances, and in a month's time, the robber gang might be war-dancing around his financial carcass. This very day a streetcar might run him down, or a sign fall from a building, 
and smash in his skull. Or there was disease, ever rampant, one of Luck's grimmest whims. Who could say, tomorrow or some other day, a ptomaine bug or some other of a thousand bugs might jump out upon him and drag him down. There was Dr. Bascom, Lee Bascom, who had stood beside him a week ago and talked and argued, a picture of magnificent youth and strength and health. And in three days he was dead. Pneumonia, rheumatism of the heart, and heaven knew what else. At the end, screaming in agony that could be heard a block away. That had been terrible. It was a fresh, raw stroke in daylight's consciousness. And when would his turn come? Who could say? In the meantime, there was nothing to do but play the cards he could see in his hand. And they were battle, revenge, and cocktails. And luck sat over all and grinned. End of Part 2 Chapter 10